Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. We have some announcements for feeding the homeless on Wednesday. That's right. That's right. You're famous. We have the next women's study Thursday, October 20th, 6 p.m. And the reason it's October 20th is because that Thursday, October 6th, is the refresh conference for anybody that wants to go. 6th, 7th, and 8th. Calvary Aurora. I got a rock before that weekend. There you go. The next men's study is October 1st at 9 a.m. And the next youth night is this Thursday, September 22nd at 6 p.m. here at the house. And then there's the race coming up October 22nd in Elizabeth that benefits the Alternatives Pregnancy Center. Just the head, well, not the mayor. The heads up we have for the okay. Yeah, but the race is still going to happen with or without okay. us. I'll just make yeah. sure. And, and everybody's invited to the race okay. with or without us. See you at the poll. It's coming up not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday. Right? Do you need some more flyers? Well, I you, think I got all the classes. Okay. And then sign up for emails. Email updates. If I don't have your email, do I have your email? No. Do you want an email update? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, with that, we'll get started. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9. And we should finish the chapter today. Okay. Well, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together, to worship you, to learn more about you. And I just ask that you would um, speak to our hearts, that the words here today would be your words, not mine. That you would meet each one of us right where we're at. You know what we're going through. You know what we're thinking. You know um, what our desires are. That you would meet us, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, that you would lead us in a way that only you can. Jesus, I'm so thankful for your sacrifice on the cross that you're willing to forgive each and every one of our sins, no matter what they are, no sin too great for you, that your love can't cover. I just ask that you would guide us this week as we go out into the world, that you would help us to be a light and a witness to those around us. Help us to love those around us, to love those who um, don't love us back, that you would guide us in truth and in wisdom that can only come from you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 So we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. But before we jump into Romans chapter 9, you can hold your finger there. I want to look at a couple other verses. And this kind of ties in. Paul's going to continue on the same path that he's been on throughout the chapter. Um, but the other verses that, that I want to bring up first is Malachi 3.6. I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. So the Lord doesn't change. 
He's the same. And then we read that again in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God never changes. So the Jesus we read about in the Old Testament, is, or the Jesus in the New Testament that we read about, is the same God in the Old Testament. He doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His attributes do not change. His love towards us does not change. His love towards his creation does not change. So, Paul's kind of led us through. We talked through Jacob and Esau. We talked, through, looked at that. We looked at before they were born, what did God say? And God said that, that Jacob, or that Esau would serve Jacob, right? So there'd be conflict between them, even from the womb. And then we looked at verse 13, and that was way at the end of the, the Old Testament, long after they had lived. And he said, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Um, and both in the past tense. So he didn't reject him before they were born. He didn't, it wasn't that he didn't give Esau a chance to turn to him. He gave him every opportunity that he gave Jacob, but Esau chose to reject God, and God rejected Esau. And we see that God is perfect and just and true, then last week we got into um, Roman or into uh, into Pharaoh and Moses and Moses telling Pharaoh to let my people go, and we go through quite a few plagues and and Pharaoh, no, I'm not going to let your people go. No, no, I'm God. You're not God. You know I don't believe what you say. I don't believe this is from God. I don't believe you're God. And then, finally, God hardened Pharaoh's heart through that. But not before he gave Pharaoh many, many chances. Um, so, we're going to look at one more area that, that makes it clear that, that God gives everyone, every chance, every opportunity to receive him here this morning. So, so we'll start Romans chapter 9, verse 21. So, when a potter makes jars out of clay... Doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw in, throw garbage into? So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 45. And this is one of my favorite areas of scripture. There's quite a few that I have, but this is one of my favorite ones. So God's the potter and he makes us for a purpose. He has a purpose for each of our lives. And God's desire is that all should repent and turn to him. That's his desire. But here we get to read um, the Israelites at this point in time are in captivity. Um, and here we get to, well, let me back up. Isaiah 45 is written about 200 years before this event actually takes place. But this is a, a foretelling, a prophecy of what's going to happen. And the, the prophecy is that the Israelites will be in captivity, but Cyrus, this leader of the Persians, will come and free them. Um, and God writes this, which I find absolutely amazing, writes this in Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is written 200 years before, before Cyrus is ever even born. So God speaks to him and speaks exactly what he's going to do. Not that God makes Cyrus do this. Cyrus has his own choice to obey God or not. But God knows what he's going to do. He already knows. God knows the, the beginning from the end. He knows all that's going to happen. So 
Here we'll read what God writes to Cyrus personally, 200 years before he's ever born. So Isaiah chapter 45, starting here in verse 1. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened, never shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus. I will level and level the mountains. I will smash down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. And I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches, which do the, I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. And why have I called you for this work? Why did I call you by name when you didn't even know me? It is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. I am the Lord. There is no other God. I have equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. So all the world from east to west will know that there is no other God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I create the light, I make the darkness, I send good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does those things. Open up, O heavens, and pour out your righteousness. Let the earth open wide your salvation. The righteousness can sprout up together, and I, the Lord, created them. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with his maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, Stop, you're doing it wrong. Does the pot exclaim, How clumsy can you be? How terrible it would be for a newborn baby to say to its father, Why was I born? Or if it said to its mother, Why did you make me this way? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel, and your Creator. Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the, works, about the work of my hand? I am the one who made the earth and created the people to live on it. With my hands, I stretched out the heavens. All the stars are at my command. I will raise up Cyrus to fulfill my righteous purpose, and I will guide his actions. He will restore my city and free my captive people. Without seeking a reward, I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. So God makes it clear here that, that he's going to raise up Cyrus. That Cyrus doesn't even know him, but he calls him out by name. And he writes this 200 years. And I believe that Cyrus, that the Israelites probably would have shown this to Cyrus. And that there would have been good historical documents at that time that would back that up. That, that that Cyrus would know that this wasn't just written a couple of days before he showed up to town, but, but this was truly written long before he was ever born, and that there is one true God. And that's the purpose of, of why God did what he did, to show the entire world from east to west that there is one true God, and that he could use people who, who aren't his chosen people, who aren't the nation of Israel, to fulfill his will. And he uses Cyrus for that. And he brings up, you know, who are we to question? The, the potter. He makes us for a plan and a purpose. And I think in our lives, it's easy to say, 
oh, I don't like this job. I don't like this purpose you've created me for. I should be doing that over there. Or why am I not as good as, as this person at this sport? Or why am I not excelling like this? Why can't I have that person's skills or that person's abilities? And really, we're supposed to be content with the way God made us because he has a plan and a purpose just for us. And we shouldn't take our eyes off of everyone else and put them on ourselves. Ask God to forgive us and ask God to use us the way he intended to use us. So when God says that he's the, the potter and that he has the right to make us the way he did for his plan and purpose, he is absolutely right. And we should walk in that. We should trust him. We should believe him in what he says, that he has a plan for us and that he made us for a specific reason, for a specific purpose, for a specific work in his kingdom. So we'll go back to Romans 9 and we'll look at verse 22 now. So Romans 9, 22, in the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. So we just read how God is the potter and creates all things. And he created Cyrus and Cyrus chose to walk with God. He chose to be obedient to God, just like our leaders in the, in the, in this world, in this nation, um, God has appointed them for a, a reason, and it's their choice to walk with God, to, to follow God, to listen and obey what God has told them to do, right? And that's their choice. But that doesn't always mean that that happens that way, right? But God gives everyone that opportunity. So he's very patient with those whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He knows who's going to receive him and who's going to reject him. But even those he knows that are going to reject him, he's still very patient. And for that, we're going to go to John chapter 13. We're going to take a look at that. We won't read the whole chapter, but we'll read a few of the key verses. So this is, the, this is at the Passover celebration. They're in the, the room. They're getting ready to celebrate the last Passover. After this, Jesus would be handed over to the Romans and crucified. And Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's about to happen. So before they, well, we'll pick it up here in John chapter 13, verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with the towel he had around him. So he washes all of his disciples' feet, including Judas, who he knows is about to betray him and about to, to turn him over to the Romans who are going to beat him, abuse him, and crucify him. He knows that's going to happen, but still he washes Judas's feet, right? And he still chose Judas. He gave Judas every opportunity to receive him. Right? And he still loves him all the way to the end. 
So we'll skip down a few verses to, to verse 21. And we'll pick up and see. Um, so he's washed their feet. Um, what we skipped over is, is Peter arguing with him. Oh, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And then he says, well, I don't wash your feet. You don't belong to me. And then Peter says, well, then wash my head and wash all of me then. He says, no, you're already clean. You just need your feet washed. So Peter always liked to argue. Argue with Jesus. Thought that he knew more than Jesus. So we're going to skip over that part, but we're going to read um, what, they, what happens when they're sharing their meal. So right after Jesus washed their feet, they're sharing a meal together. We'll pick that up. John chapter 13, verse 21. So now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom could he mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who is he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, It is the one to whom I give the bread. I dip in the bowl, and when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, Hurry and do what you're going to do. So Jesus knows that he's going to betray him, but still Jesus washes his feet. So if you think about that, would you be willing to wash the feet of your family? Maybe. Would you be willing to wash the feet of your friends? Maybe. Would you be willing to wash the feet of your enemies? Mm, that would be a lot tougher, huh? Knowing your enemies, this is your enemy that's going to betray you and cause you lots of hurt and pain and harm. Would you wash their feet right before you, they were going to do that? That would be a lot tougher. But this just shows you what God does. That God, even though he knows what Judas is going to do, that Judas is going to reject him, reject Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus still gives him every opportunity to turn. And Jesus still loves him that much that he washes his feet and serves him. And that's the same God that we serve, that we see in the Old Testament. The same God that with Jacob and Esau, the same God with Pharaoh, he still loves them that much that he gives them every opportunity to turn to him. And that's the important part for us to understand here. And important, that's why Paul brings it up in many different places in many different ways. He wants you, us to understand that we serve a God, a loving God, a God that doesn't change, but a God who um, is patient even with those who he knows will reject him, right? He still gives them every opportunity. No one's going to get up to heaven and say, Oh, but I didn't know you. You didn't make yourself known to me. No, God made himself known to everyone. And God gave everyone the opportunity to turn to his son. And not just one opportunity, over and over and over again. So, so we'll go back to Romans and we'll pick it up in verse nine, or, uh, chapter 9, verse 23. So Romans chapter 9, verse 23. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who are prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God said in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people will now, I now, 
I'm sorry, those who are not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And we read that in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. So God does these things so that his riches and his glory and his love can be shown even brighter to us. That we can see how much he loves us, that he loves his enemies. How much more does he love those who are his children? And that the people of Israel, we'll get into this here in a minute, but the chosen people of Israel were chosen for a purpose, and the purpose was to point the world to Jesus. But they chose not to, right? So he chose them, but they didn't all choose him. Um, just like he chooses the whole world. He sent his son to die for the entire world, but not the whole world chooses to receive his son. So we'll continue on here. Romans chapter 9, verse 26. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So the last place in Hosea, um, Paul brings that up and he's pointing to the Gentiles, but now he's talking about the Jews again. So, and at the place that they were told they're not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So the people, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel reject him. They reject Jesus as their Messiah um, and the, they're not his people but they will return to him is what God's saying. They'll, they'll come back to him. That Jesus will come back again. And at that point, their eyes will be opened. They'll receive Jesus as their Messiah. Continuing on here in verse 27, and, concer and concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand on the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies has not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. So we read these verses, um, Isaiah 10, verse 22 through 23. And then the last quotation from Isaiah comes from Isaiah 1 verse 9. And what he's saying is that if it, there were a few that, that received Jesus, a few that accepted him as Messiah, a few that stayed faithful to God, a few that believed God. And if it hadn't been for those few, they would have been wiped out, like Sodom and Gomorrah. That we read about Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham. God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's there and he needs to go get Lot. And Abraham says, well, God, what if you find 50 righteous people there? Would you still destroy it? And God says, no, I won't destroy it if there's 50. And he said, well, well, what about 40? If there's 40, would you still destroy it? No, if there's 40, I won't destroy it. Well, what if there's only 30? No, if there's 30, I won't. And he gets all the way down to 10. And, you know, and then finally, Abraham realizes that, okay, there are no righteous. That he's allowing Lot and his family to be removed. And you could question at that time if Lot is even righteous. And I'd say at that time he's not. But Jesus died for his sins as well. And that they were nailed to the cross. And that Lot at some point in his life asked for forgiveness. And how can we say that? Because we read in the New Testament that Lot was a righteous man. And what does God do? When he forgives us, he wipes our record clean. He removes those sins from us. He doesn't hold them over our head. He loves us that much. Right? Every single one of us. 
So we'll continue on here in verse 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. So what does this all mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. So how are we made right with God? By faith. And what is faith? By believing. And what do we believe? We believe that God loved us so much, he sent his son to die for our sins. When we believe that, we're saved. When we believe that, we're in right standing with God. When we believe God at his word, when he says that he'll never leave us, never abandon us, we're righteous with God, right? When we believe his promises, that when we believe the promises of Romans that we read through, 8.28, that he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he works all things for good for those who are believers. When we believe that, we're in right standing with God, right? When we don't allow the enemy to deceive us or to lie to us, and how does the enemy deceive us and lie to us? He throws those fiery arrows, right? We've been over this, and a lot of times those fiery arrows come in our thought lives. We could begin to think things, you know, doubts of God, doubts of who we are, doubts of what God's called us to do, doubts that, that God really loves us, doubts that God will really forgive us for all of our sins, right? That, that happens to us over and over again. But when we believe, when we choose to trust in God, God, your word says this, and I believe it. I don't believe these fiery darts from the enemy. That's faith. That's belief. That puts us in right standing with God, right? That he is who he says he is. He always has been. He always will be. And he is today. So we'll continue on here. Romans chapter 9, verse 32. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So what happened to the Israelites? They were the Jews. They were so busy keeping the law, keeping their traditions, being religious, that when the God of all creation came down and lived among them, they rejected him. They didn't recognize him because their hearts weren't after God. And that's what God is after. He's after our hearts. He's not after our works. He's not after us being perfect, us keeping all the laws. He's not after, did you read your Bible this morning? Did you pray this morning? Did you go down the checklist? today. No, he's not after that. Are all those things good and beneficial for us? Absolutely. Do those things help us to grow in our relationship with God? Spending time with him in prayer, spending time reading his word every day, spending time with other believers in Bible studies, men's and women's studies, and youth group, encouraging other believers. Do all those things benefit us and draw us closer to God? Absolutely they do. But do all those things make us righteous with God? Can we go through those with a hard heart? We absolutely can. And you see that with the Jews. That they go through all these steps, one by one, with a hard heart. And they thought, oh, I'm doing all this right. You owe me, God. Look at all these things I've done. I've followed the checklist when they really didn't. You owe me, God. And that's a very dangerous place to be. God doesn't owe us anything. He loves us so much that he freely gave his own son because of his love. He didn't owe it to us. He didn't. We're not entitled to it. What he owes us, what we're entitled to, 
is punishment, punishment for our sins, punishment for the crimes we committed against him. But instead of being punished, he gives us grace. And that grace is going to him. We're still guilty, but we have a pardon. Jesus has pardoned us from our sins. He's removed them from our record. So... We are going to jump to, so that's the end of Romans chapter 9. But I do want to take a look at Exodus. Let's go to Exodus. We were there last week, but let's look at Exodus 19. We'll start in verse 3. We want to talk about God's chosen people and what that, God's chosen people were Israel, um, but we kind of went over this first, that they've, they've left God, they've abandoned him. There's a few that have remained that believe in God, believe in the Messiah, believe that Jesus is God. There's a few, but, but the majority of the nation has left God. But he will bring them back to him. He'll call them back. And so, so I want to look at what did he call them for? What did he set them? What, made, what did he choose them for? And that's what we're going to look at here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. So then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. So this is after they've, they've left Egypt, like we read last week. They've crossed the Red Sea at this point. They're out in the wilderness. Um, and now God is going to give Moses the law. So here in verse 3. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure. From among all the people on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So what did he call them for? What did he set them apart for? That if they obey him, they'll be his special possession, his, his own people, and he is going to use them to be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, the kingdom of priests is to point people to God, right? To direct people to, to a relationship with God, to um, work on the people's behalf, um, to further their understanding of God, to teach them, to instruct them. And that's what he called the nation of Israel to do, to be that light and the witness to the rest of the world, to point people to Jesus. But... It's their choice again. He doesn't force them. He didn't pick them because they were exceptionally gifted in any one certain thing. He chose them simply because he chose them. Because this was the nation that he could magnify his greatness, his power, his love, and his mercy the most through. And you see that, how they continue to reject them, but he continues to love them over and over again. He doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't discard them. He doesn't destroy them. Even though they reject him over and over again, he chooses to love them. And we've seen that with everybody we've talked through here in chapter 9. That Esau chose to reject him, but God loved him and gave him every opportunity. 
Pharaoh chose to reject him, but God loved him and gave him every opportunity. That um, Judas chose to reject Jesus, but Jesus still gave him every opportunity to receive him. And the nation of Israel has chosen to reject God, but they have, God has given them every opportunity to receive him. Right? So, but they are choosing not to fulfill what they're supposed to do, which is pointing the whole world to Jesus. So God said, we read this in, in Hosea, that he is a new people, and not that the church replaces the nation of Israel. God's not done with Israel. He still has a plan and a purpose for them, but now he's called the church to point the world to Jesus, right? And who is the church? We are, yep. The believers of Jesus Christ are his church, his special possession. And what are we to do? We're to point people to Jesus through our lives, through how we live, through our actions, by our example, not by our words, not by telling people we're a Christian, telling people they're going to hell if they don't listen to the Bible, telling people they're wrong if they're not in church. No, no, no. We're to point people to Jesus by our lives, by our love, by our patience, by our kindness, by our example. Do we live out what we claim to be? We claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. Do we live that out? Do we follow his example? Do we wash our enemy's feet? And that is a very tough one to do, right? It's tough enough just to pray for your enemies in private, to um, ask God to bless them. That's what we're told to do. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, those who spitefully use you. Ask God to bless them. Well, that's hard enough to do in private. Now Jesus takes it one step further and he washes their feet in public. And do we do that? And the best example I've ever heard of this is you're at a party or at a gathering and you have a friend walk in. And what happens? You're very excited. And you go and you see that friend, give him a big hug. Hey, I'm so glad to see you. And you're at the same gathering, the same event, and one of your enemies walks in. And do you walk up and do you give him a big hug? Hey, I'm so excited to see you. No, most of the time you stay away from them and think, well, I just won't have any conflict. That'll be peace, right? The absence of conflict. No, that's not peace. And that's not what God's talking about. God says the word to love them or to go up and give them that big hug and embrace them. Hey, I'm so glad to see you, right? That's what Jesus did. That's the example he set. Not this other example of, of being mean or hard-hearted towards someone but not expressing it outwardly and thinking that you're right you're in right standing with god because you're not you're supposed to love your neighbors love your enemies pray for those who persecute you and go wash their feet go serve them so not easy but i think when we do that not only does that speak volumes into their lives of who jesus is but that also changes our hard hearts towards them so one other area that we're going to look at today is in 1 Peter chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 1. So Get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. 
now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. So he's speaking to believers here. And what is Peter instructing us to do? To get rid of those sinful things in our lives, to distance ourselves from them. That sin is serious, that sin is, is never accepted by God, that is never condoned by God, that his long suffering, oftentimes people think, well, God hasn't punished me for this, so he must not really be mad about it. He must not care. No, don't mistake God's long suffering for acceptance. God never accepts sin. So we're supposed to get rid of sin. And now that we've had a taste of the Lord's kindness, we're supposed to crave this spiritual milk, this growing in him. And how do we do that? We do that right here. Going through a Bible study at church with other believers and fellowship with them, encouraging them in good works and good deeds. We're to do that um, in our own prayer life, in our private time with God. We're to do that in our reading with God. You know, when we read God's word daily, it's always amazing to me how so many times it speaks to what I'm going through that day or a day later or sometime that week or somebody else is going through something and you can talk to them about that. Hey, I just read through this. This might be where you're at. Maybe you should look into this. But so many times God uses that. He knows what we're reading, what we're going to be, and he uses that in our lives, right? Either for ourselves, for our own benefit, or for others. The reason that we're in fellowship isn't so much that we can receive. So many times people think, well, what's, I don't know if I need that. I don't know if I need to go to church. I think I'm fine. Well, what if it's not about you? What if you're at church? What if you're in a Bible study? What if you're connected with other believers not to receive, but to serve them, to wash their feet, to listen to them, to listen to what they're going through, to be able to speak about your life? And maybe God will use that in a way that ministers to them. What if it's not about you, but about serving others? And that's the mindset that we have to have as believers. That we're supposed to rid ourselves of these sinful things, crave this spiritual milk, this nourishment, this filling of God's kindness, that um, his kindness and his love that attracts us to him, we should be sharing that with everyone around us, right? And you can't do that when we're in a, in a bubble, in a, our own isolated area. We'll continue on here in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verse 4. So you are coming to Christ. You, here, let me start over. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for a great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for a great honor. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So anyone who trusts in Jesus will never be disgraced. But if you look back at verse 5 here, that the, the builders rejected this corner, this stone, and that's become the chief cornerstone. The foundation of this building is Jesus. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of this church is Jesus. And he's using each one of us as a building, as a block in that foundation, in that temple, in that spiritual temple. And that through Jesus, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, what are those sacrifices? 
We have sacrifices of praise, right? And our praise and worship before we got started. Is that a spiritual sacrifice? Absolutely it can be. I don't feel like worshiping today, but I'm still going to. Not because it's not about me. It's not about how I feel, but God's worthy of that praise, that worship. And that's what we're to do. And that, and that we are his holy priests. And what does that mean? That we are to point people to Jesus. That we, each one of us, has that responsibility. The nation of Israel no longer wants to point people to Jesus, doesn't want to receive him as the Messiah. And God has given his church that responsibility. And again, not that God is done with the nation of Israel. They have a plan and a purpose still that he's going to fulfill in them. But as far as pointing people to Jesus, pointing people to the Messiah, that that's our responsibility. That's the church's responsibility to take the good news, the gospel message to the entire world, to be those priests, to be those ones that point to Jesus, that instruct in what God's done in our lives, um, instruct what God's word says, that we're to be sacrificial spiritually of our time, our talents, and our treasure. And that our cornerstone, our foundation of everything we do is in Jesus. It's the work that he's done, the foundation that he's laid, we're to build on that. And that foundation is love. He loves us that God loved us so much he sent his only son to die for us, right? That's the foundation we build on. Not this foundation of hate and discontent or separation, but a foundation of love. So let's continue on here in verse 7. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. So they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy. Now you have received God's mercy. So he has called us out for this very special thing. For his very own possession. To be these royal priests. To point people to God. And again, this is to follow in Christ's example, to wash our enemies' feet, to love those who, in our minds, maybe don't deserve love or we don't think we can love, we're called to love them. And I think of a couple ways, now that we're talking about the church, the overall arching church, there's two areas where the church really struggles with this. And one is in the homosexual community, right? That the church wants to come against and and point out that, that God hates them and, and all these things, but I don't I just can't I can't make that connection. I can't read that. I, I read in the Old Testament that, that God calls out in the law what all these sins are, and there's quite a few a big list, and that God does not compromise at any point and never accepts sin and never condones sin. He always calls out sin. I absolutely read that. But I also read in the New Testament where Jesus catches the woman in adultery. And what does he do? Does he get on board with everybody else and say, yep, stone her? No, no, no. 
he shows her mercy, right? And he loves her and he gives her another chance because he's long suffering. And I would say to you that you're probably gonna see that woman in heaven, that he was long suffering because he knew that she would turn to him, right? So that's the Jesus we serve. That's the God we serve. He's the same God in the New Testament that he is in the Old Testament. So when the church comes hard against these people with hate and discontent and wants to separate them from God, I would tell you that's not from God. And that they may be led by a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. There's many demonic spirits out there that will deceive us, that will distract us, that will take us away from the one true God. Um, and we talked about that a little bit last week. But we need to be careful not to align ourselves ever with that. The word to love. We see that over and over again. Jesus loved even his enemies, served and washed even his enemies' feet. So that when we go out, when we love the people in this world, when we serve them selflessly, when we wash their feet, that then we're pointing them to Jesus. And that's how we're to do it. And the other area that you see, that I, well, that I see, that the church takes these hard, hard stances on, is the area of abortion. And you see the, the protesters and the picketers and, and all that, and that hatred. But that hatred doesn't do any good. That hatred doesn't bring people to Jesus. Jesus, or the God we serve, is not a God of hate. He's a God of love. But when you go out and you love people, when you love your neighbors, when you love those around you, when you serve them, then you begin to point people to Jesus, to the one true God, the God of love, the God who loved each and every one of us so much that he sent his son to die for us on the cross and that all of our sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to that cross. Jesus took them out, all of them. And that's how when we ask for forgiveness, that he truly can forgive, that our sins are removed from our record, never held over our heads again. He never brings them up. He loves us that much. That's the God we serve. And that's the God that we're supposed to be an example and a light and a witness to. That's how we are. Each one of us, a royal priest, pointing people to Jesus through our love and our kindness, not through our hate or discontent. That's never from God. That's never from the Holy Spirit, who is God. So with that, that's kind of where we end today. Do you got any questions? Why would he wash their feet? Yeah. So these men at this time are probably thinking that, that Jesus, they're realizing he's the Messiah, that he's going to be this leader. And they're thinking, well, we're going to be leaders too. And these powerful guys, and they're always in a power struggle, right? To be at the top. And God, well, he, he kind of flips everything upside down. But I don't think he actually flips it upside down. I think he's just turning it right side up. This is always the way God had it designed. That if you want to be a leader you're going to serve others, not be served by others, right? And the world has, has, has perverted that and says, no, if you're gonna be a leader, you should be served by others. And the more people that serve you and bow down to you, that makes you a better leader. And that's not true. That's not what Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us that if you wanna lead, then you serve others and you're gonna wash others' feet. The people that are below you that in ranking or whatever, they, you're not to be served by them, but you're to serve them. You're to wash their feet. You're to help them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's why. People say he's coming soon, but no one actually knows when he's coming. <laughs> yes, that is a good point. Although, 
I was at a meeting at CDOT headquarters this week, and someone pointed out to me that we do know the very second he's coming. And that is when the last person, the last believer, receives him. At that moment, he'll come back. That's what his word says. So you don't know the day, the hour, the, any of that, but you know the second, the moment the last person believes, then he'll come back. So that is a great question. And that kind of ties into the question is, well, why did God put the, the tree in the garden that they couldn't eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did he do that? So without, without choice, there is no love. Okay? So even the angels choose to love God. Okay? It's, they're not this mindless being that has no control over what they do. You see that the angels, because a third of them chose not to love God and fell from heaven, right? But that means that two-thirds chose to love God. And even if they all left, if they all, God is still mightier and powerful than everything else. By a long way, it's not even comparable, okay? But those two-thirds still chose to love God. And the third that didn't chose not to. But without choice, there is no love. Because remember, the love that we talk about is not some feeling that we feel like, I I love this person or I love this or whatever it is until until I don't love it anymore. It's not a feeling. Love is a choice. Self-sacrificing, we sacrifice our time, our talent, our treasure, and that's how we truly love, right? It's not I love people when it's easy and convenient for me. It's do I love people that are my enemies? Do I love people when it's not convenient for me, when it's not easy, that it's a choice? So without a choice, there cannot be true love. That's true love, is a choice, self-sacrificing love. And my very last question. Okay. So it, it kind of adds on to what, like, why God would say, can't God make, like, anything happen? Yes. So if he can make anything happen, why, why are we all sinning? That's a very, very good question. So God is all-powerful. He can do anything. There's nothing that he can't do, right? But he chooses to allow us to have that choice, that free will to, to, to sin, to live a life away from him, or to choose to live a life with him to be obedient to him, to listen and obey his commands and love him and follow him. He gives each of us that choice. So if he takes away all the sin in the world, then there is no real love. There is no real choice, right? But he does promise us that he will take that away. That in the new heaven, in the new earth, that we're in paradise with him, there will be no sin, right? There will be none of that, no evil. He will make things, because... How did he originally make things? He originally made things that were good and perfect. There was no sin, no evil. And then sin entered through one man, but through one man, Jesus, grace entered. And the promise of everlasting life and the promise of paradise with him for all of eternity. Right? Yeah. So does that make sense? What about you? you have any questions?
You? You? How he used that, that priest to prophetically speak that? Caiaphas. Or, uh, yep. How do you say it? Caiaphas. Caiaphas. The high Caiaphas. priest. Yep. How he, yeah. Yep. Pretty amazing. Yep. It was amazing how it's all connected. How all the Bible, you can see it, you know, yep. from one end to the other. Though we can be here in the New Testament, we can go to the Old Testament, and it all connects. And then when we look at it all together, it all, it, God explains it all to us very well. When we look at the whole counsel of his word. I really liked the, the one on, on Jacob and Esau a couple of weeks ago, you know. Because so many times I've heard teachings of, you know, well, God rejected or hated Esau before he's even born. But then when you get into his word, well, that's not what it says. That, that God didn't say that until Malachi. And Malachi is the very end of the New Testament, long after these men had, had lived their lives and died. Then God said that. I loved Jacob and hated Esau, and both in the past tense, you know. So it wasn't a pretense thing that before he was ever born, God rejected him. No, God knew that Esau wouldn't choose him, and God knew that they'd be in conflict, but God didn't reject him until after Esau had already made his own choices. And I think that's important, because so many people say, well, before he was even born, he rejected. No, that's not what the Bible says, you know. And when we look at God's whole counsel, we get to this deeper understanding of how much he truly does love us and how he really is a fair, just, loving God. So I like that. And I love the story of, of uh, Cyrus, how he calls him out 200 years before he's even born, calls him out that he's going to free his people, calls him out by name. How amazing is that? How many gods can do that? So, okay, should we pray? Dear Father, I just thank you so much for this time. It's time to come together to worship you, to learn more about who you are, about your love, about your mercy, about your grace, about how you care for each one of us, how you have a plan and a purpose for us, that you had it all planned out from the very beginning. You knew exactly what would take place, that nothing we've done has caught you by surprise or caught you off guard. You knew exactly where we'd be at exactly the right time, and you gave us every opportunity to choose you, and I'm very, very thankful for that. I'm thankful that your long-suffering that you didn't wipe me out long ago in all my iniquities and all my sins. I'm very thankful that you're patient and that you're kind and you're merciful. Lord, I just ask you would watch over each one of us this week. You would guide us um, with your Holy Spirit. Speak loudly to us when you want us to move. That you would help us to be a light and a witness to you. That you would bring those divine appointments into our lives where we get to share the good news of your son, Jesus. We get to share the work that you've done in our lives. I ask you would um, do 
just continue to bring healing for those who need healing. That you would continue to guide the doctors for those who are, are in the position where they're seeking medical treatment. That you would guide the doctors um, either through their surgical hands or, or through their um, prescri- how they prescribe to, to cure what's ailing them, that you would guide each and every one of them every step of the way for those that are asking for your healing. That you would watch over them. That you would strengthen each of our marriages. That you would strengthen our families. That you would draw each one of us individually closer to you. Bring us closer together as a family. Bring us closer together in our marriages, closer to our spouses. That you would lead us and guide us through all things in life. I just ask you to watch over this community. That you would bless it. That you would draw it to you. Let there be a, a revival that spreads from this community to, to this state, to this nation. That many, many would come to know you. It's in Jesus' mighty name I pray all these things. Amen. Yes.